All right. So. Is Pentacles inverted for me, or is it? Well, it can be. We've never done an inversion on the show before, but if you want to go that, I can get that specific one because it did come upside down. Yeah. Is it Pentacles? It's not Pentacles. I say Pentacles. Is it Pentacles? <laughs> I have no idea. I was reading it upside down and thinking about <laughs> thinking about Greek mythology, and if it was Greek, it, it would be <coughs> or um, Roman. It would be Pentacles, I guess. But Pentacles makes more sense. I feel like maybe I've, made, I've fucked up by not saying it that way from now on, but oh, it's pretty heavy, man. But yeah, if you want to do the inversion, that's the inversion. Yeah, well, I'll put on, yeah, I'd stick to the true thing. So just, yeah, read that out into the mic and I'll get your levels. And All right, page of pentac- pentacles or pentacles if you want to do that. When reversed, unfocused, undisciplined, unorganized, materialistic clutter. The page of pentacles reversed indicates immaturity and lack of growth in matters involving security and productivity. The reversed page has a short attention span and difficulty focusing on practical tasks. If you're a student and this card appears, it is a reminder to apply yourself to your studies. Try to pay more attention to lectures and study diligently. This card can indicate someone who has trouble budgeting and saving money. Uh, if you find that you have difficulty making ends meet, take a good look at where your money goes. It can be surprising how all the little things add up quickly. This card could represent someone who has big dreams for the future but is not taking practical steps to make that dream come true. If this is you, consider why you may be resistant to investing in your future. This card can also symbolise disorganised and erroneous paperwork, particularly doc- documents having to do with finances. The reverse page of pentacles may be advising you to pay your bills, deal with your clutter and balance your bank book before you regret not doing it. Wow. That's pretty heavy. <laughs> it's like it should be called the wake up call card. Yeah, pull your fucking head in. Welcome to Fuck You Tarot Lady episode number 10. I'm here with Rob Allen. How's it going, man? Good, thanks. Great. Um, <laughs> so we're here in three phase, the new three phase, which is uh, very different to the old three phase. And uh, Rob, you are just about to rehearse for your upcoming show with Crowbar in December. We are. For the first time together in the room for, God, six months, seven months. Six months. Something you, like that. You were saying off mic uh, before we started the show that uh, the last show you guys played was at the Rev, one of the last Rev shows. Yeah, it was the last second last night of the Rev. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who'd you play with there? What kind of what kind of show was it? Uh, we played with Post Truth, who organised the show, which is basically coronation with two guitars, or well, a different guitarist, um, and awesome. Uh, who else did we play with? Fourteen Nights at Sea, which oh. kind of became one of their last shows because yeah. they pulled the pin not long after that. Uh, and my friend Sam Haven came down from Brisbane and played. Fantastic. Um, so let's talk. Let before we jump straight into Encircling Sea. You've you know you've been around the traps for, for quite some time. Let's delve into the origins of Rob and uh, kind of where your love for music has come from, which has led you down the, the kind of path you're on now. Sure. While um, you sip that, is that a latte? It is. Is it delicious? Yeah, I went, went in Melbourne. <laughs> Because you're originally not from Melbourne, is that correct? No, I'm from Warrnambool in southwest Victoria, where I live currently. Um, I lived in Melbourne for a bit over a decade, then moved to New South Wales and lived there for about six years until we moved back to Warrnambool, where we currently are. Wow. 
So what was what was life like in Warnable? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you live in Warnable. It's shit. How does uh, how do you pass your time as a as a young as a young Rob floating around Warnable? Well, look, I shouldn't say it's shit. Shit as a teenager and a young adult. Yeah. Um, it's a good place as a kid to grow up because it's you know, you know it's very outdoorsy. It's on the beach. You know you spend time and kids still do spend a lot of time playing sport going to the beach going to the pool being outside so that was and that was my childhood as well i just played sport i skateboarded from a young age so i just skateboarded and bmx and all that stuff um and the beach and the pool were a big thing my parents ran the kiosk at the pool for a few years like selling little like a um one of the ones that, like the Redskins, but they had the green in it as well, toffee apples. Yeah. They're selling that kind of stuff. Yeah, big bosses. Yeah. And, yeah. This was in the early 90s, so. That was the height of, like, tuck shop lollies with, <laughs> like, you know, snap and crackles. Um, yeah. What else was there? I was a big Warhead guy and Ghost yep. Drop guy. Was, was that in the tuck shop? Ghost Drops weren't. Warheads were, n- like, a new thing at that point, so that's how old I am. Yeah. <laughs> talking about you remember You remember a life before Warheads? Yeah. <laughs> We didn't even know what like a sour, hot thing was until a warhead came out. It's like, what is this thing? And you have it for the first time, and you're like, fuck that. I have vivid memories of being a kid, and um, we were in Phillip Island on a holiday, and there was a tuck shop was selling like really cheap warheads, and I bought like all of my pocket money's worth for the day. And then we were sitting watching the penguins come in, you know, those little stools you sit and watch. Um, I was choking on a warhead in the middle of all of that, <laughs> and everyone's like, all the like tourists taking photographs. I'm like. <coughs> <laughs> I think it was my sister who saved my life and slapped me on the back to spit it out into the sand. But, you know, so, yeah, I've had, I've had my fair share of run-ins with Warhead still. Yeah. Be fantastic. Anyway, so your parents run the tuck shop and they're at the pool. So you're at the pool a lot. Yeah, I was at the pool all the time. Yeah. And, you know, even before that, I was at the pool all the time. And I was a big diver. I competed in high school in diving. And really? Yeah. Wow. I was, um, just, yeah, loved sport, using my body like that. You know, trampolining, stuff like that. I was obsessed with it. And, yeah, skateboarding. That was pretty much my life before puberty. <laughs> so you were just living your life like, a, you know, um, there was no broken bones, stuff, not an issue. I'm assuming that would happen, right? Like, you're doing all these things. I'm assuming injuries were probably a part of your youth as well. No, uh, only time I broke a bone. Uh, I lived in Queensland as well a couple of times in before I was 13, like when I was 8 and when I was 12, I think. Uh, I broke my wrist the day before we were meant to move back from Queensland to Victoria, and that was playing basketball. Really? So no injury, skateboarding, diving, BMXing? Yeah, no, like just wow. twisted ankles and stuff. I've torn some ligaments in my ankle from skateboarding, but that was when I was an adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a young adult. Well, yeah. I was still skateboarding regularly, but as your body starts to go. Yeah, that's yeah, one of those moments. I'm not made of like, rubber anymore. Yeah, but not not much, not as a kid. No. Fantastic. What um is that how your kind of entrance to music came about through like skating and BMX, like probably like skate videos with the soundtracks? Like, what was the thing that got you interested in music? Um, I was oh, I always loved music. Like as a kid, I was buying my own singles and you know like it wasn't quite the same music but like I remember my first like kind of musical group that I got obsessed with was Two Unlimited I, I don't even know who Two Unlimited so are German kind of tech I think they're German someone can correct me on that um, techno and they did that um, ready for this song 
You all ready for this? Oh, you hear it basketball games and shit. Jam song, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was obsessed with them. I even had my dad make me a two unlimited logo T-shirt using poster T-shirt paint when I was like seven or something. But I was just, I guess I'm just like an obsessive kid. I was always really into whatever I was doing, whether it was Matchbox cars or BMX or music or now, you know, lifting or whatever. Yeah, just kind of that. You know, I really obsess over. Like a laser focus. Yeah. And it's like it might be a few things at once, but there will always be like one thing on top that I'm really focused into. But so I was always into music and stuff. I like really liked, um, I had a bagpipes, like all the traditional Scottish songs tape that I used to listen to and drive my parents crazy. Yeah. When right. I was really into it. And um, really big into hip hop in my early years. Like, I was a massive Public Enemy fan when I was, like, 8 to 10. What? Yeah. How do you even get into Public Enemy when you're, like, 8 or eight to 10? Skateboarding. Yeah? So, skate magazines and skate videos and stuff. It was, um... I was going to say, did it have something to do with John Connor wearing a Public Enemy shirt in Terminator 2 by any chance? Cause Possibly, but yeah. I think I was... Maybe... Yeah, I don't know. I can't... Yeah. I, I did like... Uh, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan, so Terminator 2 had... Sweet. Yeah. What song was uh, it? You could be mine. You could be mine. I was going to say "Sweet Child of Mine." You could be mine, and that you know that was everyone's favourite Gunners song for a while. Totally. Because it's in T two, but um, I don't know. I think I got into Public Enemy because I saw him in a skate mag. Yeah. Yeah. As in, like they were being interviewed in the skate mag. Or yeah, and I think they were coming out to play like a skate festival here at um, Torquay back in the late eighties, wow. maybe early nineties. I can't really remember, but. Yeah, that's yeah. I was just like, that looks interesting, and went and bought a tape. So, <laughs> and that was that was my obsession with hip hop. Wow, it started <laughs> early, man. Yeah, like I yeah would be like ten years old listening to Ice Cube and N.W.A. and <laughs> I remember like pl- having Body Count, which is not quite the same thing, but obviously I was into Ice T, and so therefore you go, oh, Body Count's Ice T's thing. So listening to Ice T on a trip, uh, Body Count on a trip to Geelong with my parents. And it's like, you know, it's wholly inappropriate for most people. But um, as a nine-year-old, ten-year-old or whatever I was, driving to a family function in Geelong with my parents listening to KKK Bitch. And they're like, we might um, turn this off now. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like you have some really lovely encouraging parents <laughs> to a certain level because at some point as a parent you're a parent yourself now you'd have to be like oh yes. it's time for this to turn off yeah i certainly wouldn't be letting my kids listen to body count so <laughs> until you're a little bit older kids no yeah well, <laughs> uh, shit so i don't know how i got away with it really like i don't know like they weren't big on the swearing but they certainly they didn't really broach the content at all so yeah. and i think the swearing was one thing i didn't really swear a lot as a kid um, so I guess they saw there wasn't a direct correlation between listening to swearing and swearing in general. Yeah. But the content certainly formed a lot about how I then came to get into punk and hardcore. Because, and, you know, hip-hop, especially in that time, was very anti-authoritarian. It wasn't rapping about cars and gold and shit. Yeah. You know? They're like real issues. Like well, real. and Public Enemy, you know, they still are. They're a political mm-hmm. hip-hop. So that's, you know, that's what drew me in there. That's... And I really got into, like, I remember being obsessed with knowing what was going on with the LA riots in 92 or whenever that was. Wow. And um, 
yeah, just being really into those social issues that hip hop talked about at the time. So, just for listeners to to get a bit of uh, a grasp on all this. So, ninety two, I was four years old. So, I, I wouldn't be anywhere near what was going on around the LA riots at the time. Was there news about it here in Australia? Or yeah, re- like like yeah. that was it was talked about, and you were trying. Oh to yeah, like lots. Yeah, it was all right. over the news, and we still had. I don't know if we had more than two channels at that point, but I think we were still in ABC and Nine. Was it win? Was it? It was win. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, and we might have had gotten the more channels there, but where we lived, it was just ABC and win. So, on the news all the time was the LA riots. So I think it may have changed by then. Yeah. I certainly know when we first moved to Queensland when I was like eight. That was the first time we had Channel Seven and uh, what was, Channel what, Ten. When you get in Channel Seven and Channel Ten for the first time, what are the things that are exciting you? Is, it, is that The Simpsons that you can watch The Simpsons finally? No, Home or? and Away actually. <laughs> You were like, yes, I can finally watch Home and Away. <laughs> yeah, because you yeah, well, yeah. No, it wasn't The Simpsons because it wasn't on then. Really? I don't think so. I remember they used to they used to play The Simpsons late night on Win. Oh, okay. And it, yeah, I remember going, oh, that's like an adult cartoon. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, body count's fine, but The Simpsons like, no, nah, that's too yeah. much for me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like I can go into the shop and buy a body count tape. No one stopped me as an eight-year-old. They just go, is your mum okay with this? I'm like, yeah, she's totally okay with it. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess. But, uh, yeah, watching something past nine o'clock on TV meant that it was probably had sex in it. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Draw the line there. Yeah. Where, where you t- you're talking about, you're painting this picture of eight-year-old you buying a tape of uh, Body Count. Where are you buying music in Warnable? Like, is there a cool little music store that you would go to to kind of find well, we stuff? A, we had a record store called Capricorn Records for years and years. And they, um, it wasn't like a corporate thing, but it was a big store and they got a lot of stuff in and they'd always make an effort to order stuff if you, they didn't have it. But they just had, they had everything. Sick. Just all, like we always had access to kind of, it wasn't like Missing Link in the like, mm. late 90s, early 2000s, but it was, you know, there was lots of different stuff there and you could get kind of cool stuff that you wouldn't hear on the radio or see on video hits or whatever yeah there was a there was always i think everyone who lived in a small town like i'm from geelong so like coming up to missing link you know like it might be like a school excursion where you were going to melbourne and then like you and your little oh, golf yeah. mate sneak off to fucking I like smoke that, yeah. dreams and and the metal mayhem that's now like a training place on the like right yep. on set of flinders yeah. um and then yeah and then going to missing link to get all that stuff as well like that became yeah. a big part of teenage you know getting up there and finding stuff yeah um just to you know really sink this whole thing home i remember buying the abandonment cd at missing link when i was probably about like 17 it was the one that had like the drawn it's like the face and the hand what was that album called uh deja disperu yeah so i bought that at missing link when i was about 17 so i was like fuck yeah i can't get this anywhere you know (laughs) (laughs) which which really ties this whole thing together pretty well actually um so you're in warnable you're doing you're you're into hip-hop and it's moving into punk what other what were the kind of you know punky hardcore things that kind of crept in at the um, start. Pro- like being into skating and skate vids had it was either punk or certainly in the late 80s it was like the hard-ons and um and hip-hop that was pretty much any skate vid soundtrack <laughs> um and i wasn't i just wasn't into it like i never really liked the hard-ons and i couldn't appreciate you know their longevity and i like them now mm. but at the time it just didn't catch me i guess guns and roses were my foray into guitar music yeah. yeah, I feel like that'd be a, for a lot of people that would be there wanting to pick up a guitar would be would be Guns N' Roses, right? Yeah, like, I don't think I wanted to at that point. I was still too young, but that was like kind of my first taste of 
rock. Danger. Yeah, well, just not hip-hop. Because <laughs> it's like too unlimited into hip-hop. So, um, <laughs> there, yeah, the first... And it was, I, we'll put that on my cousin, who is nine months older than me, and would come and spend summer with us. And we both bought... Um, I think I bought Use Your Illusion 2 and he bought one. And we had our Walkmans with our headphones and we'd sit there and listen to each other's tapes and, like, and then you don't debrief between it. And we still, like, we might see each other once or twice a year now and we still have that that relationship where we debrief albums and like... That's great. Yeah, so I, I put it on him. He, he kind of led me into punk a fair bit. Yeah. I went more extreme, but he, he started that whole thing. I cool. Think, yeah, but and also being a skater and a, like a bodyboarder when I lived in Queensland, it, it, as it got into the nineties, it started to become more punk than hip hop in the videos. Yeah. So you start to learn like you know No Effects and Good Riddance and Snuff and you know all those Fat Records bands. Yeah. Start to pop up on videos and. Yeah, and then I guess with like Tony Hawk and then the soundtracks of all of those games, I feel like that would dictate where the music goes in that kind of scene as well because sure. right? that's like for me I'll just interrupt you sure Tony Hawk was around when I was an adult so <laughs> it didn't really shape it for me yeah right so I was already like, into punk and then playing Tony Hawk was like oh I know this song oh you know, wow so that's to- that's not so to try funny. and be cool but just to be old <laughs> it's cool and old yeah so you so like you were already like that's already happening. So you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. This would be the soundtrack for this. Whereas for me, it's like, holy <laughs> shit, this is like, I'd never heard any music like that before, you know, and then those songs become so ingrained, mm. you know, into, into, I guess, like what I see as like skatey culture or like yeah, that sure. kind of extreme sports culture. Yeah. But that was already kind of happening. That undercurrent was already there when you were, when you were Well, I didn't play, I didn't play many video games, but I did play a lot of Tony Hawk because I was a skater. And I think every skater probably did because you can just do impossible stuff who was your guy who'd you pick i don't i can't even remember yeah yeah like couldn't even tell you like maybe probably tony hawk <laughs> um maybe bucky I don't, I don't really know um probably smoked too much pot during that time <laughs> but it was um yeah it didn't really like it was kind of a pastime yeah that, and that was probably one of the very few games that i played with any regularity yeah and right. that was probably like one one share house that I lived in that one of them, my housemates had a PlayStation and we played that so I wasn't someone who sought out video games at all yeah right it sounds like you're too busy being outside well I was as a kid yeah, yeah. yeah. okay so at this point now so you know you're, you're living your wonderful life at what point do you realise you need to get out of there like at what point did you move I moved when I was 18 to go to uni yep. but I certainly wanted to be out of there long before that puberty is when I realised I wanted to be out of there so <laughs> And it's still like, still, I still see the same things now that griped me when I was 15, you know, the same bits of our town that shit me are still then, that shit me then, <coughs> are still the same ones now. Yeah. So it's like the clickiness and the exclusion of um, difference and stuff like that. Like, you know, being a 15-year-old kid with a mohawk riding a skateboard down the main street, it would be a fair chance you would either get yelled at um, stopped to fight or like the cops would pull you up because you just looked like they're like who's this fucking troublemaker you know yeah <clears throat> um there just wasn't much in that kind of, there wasn't any kind of counterculture it was like footy and then yeah the people i knew who were into punk and hardcore and grindcore and all that stuff were older than me so there wasn't a lot 
Was there much of a scene there? Was there a place to play shows? Like, could you it see? Was, yeah. yeah, like, and what kind of shows did you see in Warrnambool? Like, what kind of bands were playing? Like, would people come through and play? Or yeah, or they would come to like certainly a bit before my time. There was a bit more of a scene, like the generation before me. So dudes like Joel Taylor, who you had on the show, and um, one of the guitarists in the Abandonment were a, that little bit older than me, and they had their own scene in that era. Um, that I wasn't really part of because I couldn't go to the pub to see him. Oh, no. But so it wasn't AA gigs, it was like... No. No, so we had one pub that had shows upstairs and downstairs, the biggest shows, like, um, that I ended up playing there in its last kind of heydays. But when there was more of a local scene, there'd be, like, you know, Blood Duster upstairs with a bunch of local bands supporting it. And then cool. downstairs it might be a, a smaller Melbourne band. And... Um, those the basement shows at that venue were insane. We played a few that were just mayhem. Yeah. So, so what? What? So is this like your first uh, instance of a band at this point, or were you playing before then? Like, when did you first pick mm, up a guitar? Or well, I think I was like fourteen or fifteen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so and how? And how did that happen? Like, as we talked about, there was Guns N' Roses before that. What yeah. was the thing that you were like, "Fuck it, pick up a guitar"? Well, I got a CD player for Christmas and a bunch of like grunge CDs or something like that, like Nirvana and. Offspring, which is kind of grunge punk crossover. Um, I don't know, live maybe. <laughs> I really actually I really like live. I had a throwing copper T-shirt at one point. It's a striking album cover that yeah. that artwork, man. I like, really like that album still, except for when it plays at the gym over and over like that. Or Triple M, man. Like yeah. you know, like it just gets a bit thrashed, eh? Hey? Yeah. Or like listening to what's that song about abortion on there? Um, Couldn't tell you. There's that. Uh, it's a really slow, long, maybe it's lightning crashes. Is that song about abortion? I think so. Whoa. It's either about abortion or a miscarriage. There's one song that's real, it's really heavy in what it's about. They play that at my gym and it's like, this is not the place. This is just not inspiring greatness. Come on. <laughs> We've touched on something that I want to get to a bit later, but we will get back to it later, listeners. We're going to talk about gym playlists because that's okay. something that also pisses me off too, man. The music that's like, dude, this is not going to get anyone fired up, like no, at all. No. Um, no. I'm just going to make a note of that so we get back to that later. But, so you, you're, you've got the CD player, you're listening to some grungy stuff, and then how does the guitar come in? Oh, I was... Was there one in the house, like, or did you have to go buy I, one? No, I did. We had a three-quarter acoustic in the house, and it had kind of been something that you'd mess around with over the years. Never could play it, never really had a huge interest in it, but then I got obsessed with Green Day. And ah. so... When Dookie came out, that was that was it. I was kind of that turned it all around, and I was like, get the tennis racket out. I had a grip from my BMX handles that was stuffed in the bookshelf that I used as a mic, and I would air guitar and like get <laughs> strung Mel off off mic. Mel's loving this. <laughs> um, she's hearing all these stories that she's never heard about. Me. Yeah, I was gonna say there's <laughs> the, just this hilarious side of Rob that uh, the list is It's the embarrassing <laughs> teenage years. Um, but I would get like all the strumming patterns and the chord change not you know I didn't know what a chord was mm. but I would change when like listen for the changes and, yeah. and air guitar and I did that for a while <coughs> and then started to get lessons and those lessons didn't last very long as until, they always do yeah. you know like it's always <coughs> I just want to be able to do this and they're like to do this and you're yeah. like no fuck that you yeah. know like is that kind of what happened with you like, yeah I just I well, I the teacher I had is a good teacher, but he wasn't one of those teachers that would kind of meet you where you were. Mm. He'd just go, 
well, this is where you need to start and it's fucking Jimi Hendrix and it's Elvis Presley and it's you need to learn the basics it's like I listen to punk man can you teach me some punk yeah and then he'd just be like nope you learn House of the Rising Sun and Love yeah. Me Tender and you're just like I don't even know these songs dude so and that's, <laughs> that's a huge anything like uh, on this podcast and my previous podcast you hear that a lot people picking up guitar for the first time doing lessons and so many times when you hear when the teacher is cool like oh yeah like let's yeah give us some songs you want to learn and, and we'll learn them it's like they're the ones that grab those kids straight away but yeah I, there's so many stories of people that pick up the guitar and then put it back down and don't go back for a couple of years because yeah. it's just like nah it's not for me you yeah know? well i learned the basics and never put it down but i put the i put the lessons down <laughs> i was just determined to kind of make do with what i had so how do you teach yourself at that point like so you know so chords I, at this yeah point, i knew or? basic chords and you know very basic scales and anyone that's ever been in a band with me will attest to my lack of knowledge about scales. Um, but I just kind of, I don't know, I guess this is where the, that creative part of me comes out. I was just like determined to create music with what, what I had and what skills I had. And then if, it, if I reach my skill threshold, then I'd have to put some more in. Yeah. So. But there's no point like <coughs> learning all that stuff if you're not going to put it into a song yet. You know, you may as well just play what you know and mm. then if that's cool then yeah if you want to step it up you can that makes yeah. sense um so this was like a a punk band was your first kind of band was it in that kind of vein of those bands or what did oh, it sound kind of like? i think my first band was like a bedroom band we called ourselves jargon and um it wasn't my choice um <laughs> and we kind of sound like metallica meets green day and it was terrible but and we had maybe one song like one and a half songs over jamming for a couple of months but it's one of those bands where it's more <laughs> about just covering other songs and getting a feel and like no we wrote we wrote originals oh you did never did the cover thing i never have whoa really, really? Like i played covers in bands but it was never my starting point I'm not, right. and i still couldn't really sit down and play a song like you know everyone can sit down and play some songs i can't really do it there's <laughs> like a maybe a couple or a couple of riffs i can do but i just can't I just wow. never learned them, had no interest. It was all about, I have to... Like, you want to do your own thing. Yeah, and That's I just had these things that just would, like, oh, I want to create these things with the guitar. So that was kind of my deal. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fuck. Okay, cool. So <laughs> you, so when you get to the point where you're playing at the Warnable pub, like, what, what band was that? Like, what... Oh, that wasn't until a Melbourne band and we went back. Oh, really? Yeah. So you never got to, like... Never got to play when I was... Oh, because that would have no, made that no, mohawked no. version of you so happy to be like, to be able to play the pub and be like, yeah, this is my thing, you know. Like it was, it was. I would say it was fun to come back and you know have people there that were kind of gave you shit in high school and they're listening to your music. And they're like, well, you know, this is awesome, and you're kind of like, yeah, fucking fuck you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think. If you uh, really wanted to get truthful with most people when they start bands, I think that's a big reason for a lot of people <laughs> why they do that. And if you're listening right now and you're thinking, no, you're probably full of shit. Because yeah. that's, everyone did. That's exactly why well, you know, we started a high school band as well. It was like a big fuck you. It was a big, you know, like you wanted to do what you wanted to do. That's it. And there's something really kind of empowering about that when you can. You yeah. can go back and play that show and be like, check, check us out. <laughs> and you're, you're a shit band, you know what I mean? Because you're yeah. like, you know, you're young and you're full of, you know stupid ego and stuff but like you know it's that's the thing that starts you on that path right sure you know i don't think you're gonna get pushed to do it unless there's that reason to do it right sure i wouldn't i wouldn't put it down to just showing like having something to prove like mm. I, I needed to do it i still need to do it that's why i'm still doing it at nearly 40 and will probably do it until i die mm. is that i need it needs to come out so but there is an element of that yeah but 
Yeah. yeah I, I think, think there's a reason it, why. It might half, be a little bit of that spark, you know, at the start. Maybe, sure, yeah. And like half of the, you know, um, well, pretty much all the musicians I hooked up with when I first moved to Melbourne were all from Warnable or around. Oh, really? So, yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about that. So you're in, you've moved to Melbourne, you're doing uni. Um, how do you come up, like, where are you going to see bands or how do you navigate this new Melbourne utopia of, you know, like... Well, probably for the first two years, I didn't have anything to do with that scene. Like, I didn't come up here to play music. I came up here to study and um, paint graffiti. <laughs> so that's that's what I did. So let's let's get into a little bit of that. So at this time, you were living in Footscray, is that correct? Yep. So Footscray, what, what year was this? 2000. Wow, so that would have been pretty... Um, Pre-gentrified yeah. Footscray, so... Because I went to <laughs> I went to film school in Footscray in two thousand and seven, yep. and we still have to dodge the needles on the way from the station to the school. Yeah, like they were quite there, prevalent in the gutters. Like, yep. oh shit, okay, you really got to watch where you're walking. Yeah, you do. We so, did. Yeah, you did. And yep. then and then I ended up living there many years later, and you don't see him nearly as much as you used to. You know, when you've got like at, at the point where I I moved to Footscray when they just built Eight Bit Burger, that was like. I think that was where the sliding scale of gentrification just totally like slid. Like once that burger place was there and I was telling people, I remember I was at a wedding um, and I was like, oh yeah, I've just moved to Footscray. Like, oh my God, have you been to Apeburg yet? It's amazing. And I was like, all right, fuck, it's happened. Like, <laughs> we've completely shifted. Yeah. Um, so years before that in 2000. So what was it like? Like where were you living? Who were you living with? Uh, with friends of mine from Warnable who also did graffiti. Yeah. Um, well, I originally moved up to go to school and was with my girlfriend at the time and one of her friends and then quickly that became it just became a graffiti house so <laughs> like I played guitar throughout that wrote songs throughout that ended up joining a band somewhere in that two-year period that then became a relatively serious thing which led to the abandonment but um, yeah my focus in that that two years was graffiti paint shit yeah yeah right and we're talking yeah. like spray cans on a wall yeah potentially street art didn't exist then wow <laughs> Like, yeah. did, like it's always existed, but it didn't exist in Melbourne like it does now. Yeah. You know, and it was, certainly wasn't part of what we did. Right. So, so what's, uh, please, if, if you wouldn't mind indulging me, I don't understand the kind of philosophy or where that comes from, like the graffiti, the graffiti artist in someone's brain. Like, yeah. where does that come from? It's, I'm assuming it's a bit of rebelliousness. Oh, yeah. It's a bit of anti-authoritarianism, yep. uh, love of hip hop and punk, I assume, as well. Sure. So, like, <laughs> do they all kind of coalesce to make this thing? We're like, yeah, I'm going to fucking go and spray paint on a wall. Like, Yeah, and look, it, and then it becomes a different beast entirely. So um, there's that need to express art in an uncontrolled environment, you know? Yeah. So I, I didn't really do art. My, my best mate kind of pushed me into it. He's like, we're going to do graffiti together. I've got this book. And it was like he brought What was the book? Subway Art, which is an 80s graffiti book. It's like an amazing book that documents all the trains that were painted and the kind of history of New York graffiti. Yeah, right. And it, did it all <coughs> kind of spring up from New York? Is that is that kind of like the epicenter of graffiti? Or Yeah, there's a couple. New York's probably the most famous, but the, yeah. There's a few spots, right. but New York's probably the, where the biggest kind of groundswell came from. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but he brought this because he was at art school. He came, I had, like we'd hang out every day because I was at, at TAFE then too. He was doing art and I was doing music. And one day he's like, "I've got this book, right? And we're going to do graffiti together." And I was like, "What? I can't draw." It's like you'll learn. And I was shit for a long time. 
So if you were given a can now, like for a, you know a lovely legal style mural or something, like you reckon you'd be able to still? Do you have any of those? Yeah, skills like still? I painted recently, a couple of years ago. Painted. Yeah, like it, it, and it takes a little while to get the knack back of can control, but you certainly it's, it's like riding a bike. You get there pretty quickly. So done it enough. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so so you, you're doing graffiti. You're, you're studying. Um, you said you, you started a band at some point in that two years. Like, how did that happen? How did you meet these people? How did that kind of fall into place? Um, how did that happen? I was at a mind snare show at the art house. Sick. So one of the very few shows I went to was it was like, well, mind snare are playing. It was the art house's birthday, um, and I went there. And you'd be aware of the art house's reputation at this point, I assume, as well. Like a little bit, not yeah. not a hell of a lot, but a little bit. Um, and I went on my own because I had no music mates. I've gone to a couple of uh, like all ages shows at the old Midian and stuff in Richmond where yeah. they had you know old hardcore shows um, not all hardcore shows but all ages hardcore shows back in the day mm-hmm. I've gone to a few of those on my own and not really met anybody and then I went to this art house show and ran into a bunch of Warnable crew there so oh, wow. Um, and one of which who I hadn't met until then was then the abandonment founding guitarist and so we kind of talked more and about doing bands for a while and then we kind of got together and started jamming with some Portland people, which is how I met Joel. Um, hadn't met Joel years before at, um, at a Mill and Colin show in Portland. <laughs> in the front, like in the, up, up the very front for the living end. And we were, he's like, do you like this band? I'm like, yeah, they're the best band in the world. It's like, like before the living end were watered down shit oh yeah man um. <laughs> that's not um that's not a uh that's not a thing to say lightly like yeah i remember being like and because they played regional shows like yeah. i remember seeing living in in geelong and be like fucking hell like they were right there and they were like a band like yeah. fully formed the dude had the fucking big double bass and stuff it was it's an amazing thing yeah, to, kind of to see you know really good that the first ep the first couple of eps and then the first record were really good and that era like over the first two eps they were a great life man so yeah i was sold on them i loved them and he was like, oh. Joel. And you and Joel so bonded I'd, over that? or Yeah, kind of, like, in typical Joel fashion. And talk shit while he's not here. Um, <laughs> this is the only time I can talk shit on him. Is He was like, you know, do you like this band? I'm like, yeah, the greatest band. I was, like, 16, just obsessed. And it comes, I guess it comes back to the Green Day kind of stuff as well. If that's, yeah, no, you know, like Australia's yeah, Green Day. Exactly. For sure. And he was like, oh, I wouldn't say they're the best. <laughs> Which is just such a Joel thing to say. Because he's just that, he's that person, <laughs> which makes him a great musician and producer, doesn't it, Joel? Um, <laughs> but at that time, I was like, "Fuck, talk shit on the living end." <laughs> Who's this fucking guy? I think he is. Yeah, but yeah, we kind of met. Did, what did Joel look like back then? Did he have like the long same. hair? Or did no, he, have, he looked the same. Did he have a beard? No, he didn't have beard? a beard. But he just like he's. No, he hasn't gone through drastic transformations apart from the beard. He probably had a button-up shirt on because he was in a scar band. Oh, whoa! Yeah, so that wasn't mentioned on the podcast. When we yeah, had I one. don't. He's not. I don't think he's ashamed of it. But scar is a dirty word. So, well, yeah, it kind of is. Oh, yeah. I can't throw him under the bus for being like in a scar band. I loved his scar band and had his scar band's t-shirt. Which what was, was the scar band called? Do you remember? Field trip. Field trip. Fuck. Yeah. And was there a couple of scar bands getting around Melbourne back in that era? Oh, yeah, Melbourne, yeah, for sure. They, yeah. they were the only ska band in Western Victoria, like where southwest Victoria. There was another one in Ballarat, and then it was just Melbourne bands. But, yeah, the ska scene then in Melbourne was huge. Amazing. So, yeah. 
<laughs> and it certainly wasn't a dirty word back then. People loved it. There's lots of teddy boys and button-up shirts and platform docks and shit. <laughs> Amazing. People taking the porkers seriously. <laughs> You're painting a real picture of everyone, which is fantastic. <laughs> but we are. We've greatly diverted from we where we were. So anyway, so you started you started a band with the original guitarist from The Abandonment, but it wasn't The Abandonment then. Was it something else? No, it became um, As Hope Fades. Okay. So yeah. what was what was As Hope Fades and how would you characterise the kind of musical genre direction of what that kind of was? I would just say we're probably like a, a, a metalcore band. Yeah. Like early 2000s metalcore. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your influences at the time? Like what are you listening to at this point to kind of get you in that oh, zone? We all listened to very different things. Um, it was like it was, I guess the first, if you listen, if anyone finds old As Hope Fade stuff, it's pretty... Um, inverted page of pentacles like it's disorganised and you know it just kind of was like tough guy hardcore then some metalcore then some like rock and roll influence then it was just heaps of different just sort of stuff hodgepodge yeah and it like we kind of made it our own and it worked I guess and we um, we did an EP that never came out we released two songs off it but that kind of was our sound it was like, melodic and um, not metal in like metalcore in the sense of like Swedish death metal riffs with breakdowns. Yeah, it was. But that came later. Like yeah, so it was kind of before that, and it was more that sound. It was like jangly New York metalcore, <laughs> like yeah, um, that first incarnation of metalcore where it was like this weird mix of metal and hardcore. Yeah, without being Swedish necessarily <laughs> without that kind of production that gives it that kind of yeah like yeah everyone kind of leaned towards that towards the yeah end. before it went like typewriter drums and shitty downpicked melodic riffs <laughs> but we went that route too so you know I yeah can't, i can't talk that much shit so the later, later incarnation was um more like that more swedish death metal with breakdowns and then yeah. it kind of ended so so that was still as hope fades that was all still within that mm-hmm bubble yeah. and then when that ended what, how did the abandonment form like was um, it a couple of you used to want to keep going or was it similar members or it wasn't a very pretty end to that band so I won't really talk about that because it won't bring up <laughs> any good memories for anyone but there was interpersonal stuff that was largely my fault um, I got kicked out of the band and then got put back in and then the person who had the most problem with me left because they couldn't stand being in with me mm-hmm. so and that was, you know, that was young, dumb mistake that I made. Um, and, you know, never talked to that person since. Oh, so, yeah. And, like, he's still friends with, you know, Joel and um, the other Portland crew and they're all still good and I'm sure, like, it would be awkward as hell if we saw each other now, but <laughs> he wouldn't want to kill me anymore. But, um, yeah, well, it wasn't That's pleasant. That's a plus, you know. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. So when he left, it, we got... Uh, Boehner from Outsiders Code, Her Nightmare, um, he sung for us for a while. Uh-huh. We did, recorded, uh, we had heaps of songs, but we only ever recorded one with him, and there was a film clip for it, and um, this is like 17-year-old Boehner, so wow. he was pretty much the same size, but rosy-cheeked, and <laughs> just like baby-faced, not so scary looking. Um <laughs> So, you know, having known him from then, you see him now and he's like this very imposing dude. Mm. He's just not that imposing guy to me because he's 
Oh, something's. Is that who's ringing? Is that? Oh you? shit! That's my sister's phone, actually. <laughs> that's all right. We can pause it there. So you're um. So you've, you've recorded one song, you did a music video. Who did the music video for you? And what was the video? Like, what, what was, was there a storyline? Or was you guys playing in like a room? Like, what was the... Um... No, we're just playing in a room. It was just like... Loudest door ever, Mel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, what was... Tell, the, tell best, us. the best part was she was trying to be quiet too, but it was like... Yeah, um, listeners, Mel was walking around like a, like a cat burglar trying to like really slowly walk in here. Anyway, tell us about the video. What was in it? Like, who, like what were you guys doing? Like, what uh, shirt? Were you, like, were you repping bands of like, no, that? No. Like, no, the only band shirt that made it in, I think Boehner had a Mind Snare hoodie on or something. Sick. But we consciously, well, we consciously decided. I don't know whose friend it was. I think it was a, like a friend of a friend um, who was doing a, some sort of visual arts course um, where they had to make a video. And she chose to make a video, and that friend of a friend put us in contact. I'm pretty sure it was my mate Wade, who was at school, who is the owner of Vic Market Tattoo. Cool. Now, um, <clears throat> he was at school for videography, and this girl that we don't know and have, and I still I couldn't tell you her name or anything, um, made this video, and it was kind of the only thing we went off was kind of the aesthetic of Converge's Concubine and Fracture. Yeah. Is that, is that right? So that black and, more the black and white thing. So we found a gallery in the city that had a white background and it was just us individually playing. It was never like a full band thing. Yeah. Cut shots, it was. Okay. Yeah. So everyone had their individual time on the white wall and it was all just cut. Was it kind yeah. of frantically cut, you know? You, you mentioned oh, not, not, no, not really, because it didn't sound like Converge at all. So it wasn't that frantic. It oh, was right. so just the look. Just the look, just the aesthetic of it. But you, you touch on Converge, which must be a bit of a touchstone leading into, you know, your your future music. Um, my first experience seeing The Abandonment was you guys played at the Potato Shed in in, in Drysdale, oh, down past Geelong. Do you remember that? I think it was like you guys in Pitch of the End. and Yep, in Name and Blood. Yeah, that would have been it, actually. Yeah, yeah. fuck. So I saw that right. show as like a... Probably the Black Elm drummer, what band was he in? He was in a band called The Mort back then with me, but then he went on to be in a band called A Fallen Theory. Yeah, he, that's, he, yeah. he jumped on later. But A Fallen Theory would have been in the scene at that time. And yeah, I'm pretty sure they played that show. Yeah. Oh, look, they were they were Potato Shed favourites back in those yeah. days. You know, like those guys in the Red Shore and you know, sure. all that, that scene that was so vibrant in Geelong at the time, which was crazy because, you know, Matt and I were in a metal band called The Mort, which was like Cradle of Filth, Dimmu Borgia worship stuff. We had like a keyboard player and we were yep. trying to grow our hair as long as possible and straightening it to like make it look as long as possible, yep. you know, and then... Shitty makeup too. We did do a little bit of shitty makeup. There was more shitty makeup once I left the band. Sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, they did the whole corpse painting kind of stuff as well. Like, you know, yeah. the, I whole, think the I whole deal. I remember that band name. Yeah, so. oh, wow, that says a lot. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I saw, I went to that Potato Shed show, probably, I think it was, would have been a name and blood with the headliners, right? Yeah, so that was a little, I'm pretty sure that was like a bunch of shows that we mm. did in that group of three bands. Because yeah. we were all on the same, well, two of us were on the same label and then that was run by Craig Oss from In Name and Blood. Yeah, right. Um, so I saw that and that changed a lot for me. I want to say everything, maybe not everything, but it changed a lot. Like seeing you guys play, um, the energy, the tightness, like it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen before from like bands at that level, you know? It was shocking. He was like, holy fuck, who are these dudes? Like, <laughs> I remember being, taking probably shitty photos on my Nokia phone of you guys and uh, I bought a shirt. I don't know if you remember, it was like black shirt, gray print, 
and it was like a kind of old English font, but there was like little zombies and stuff walking mm-hmm. along the top. Of it. Do you remember that yep. shirt? So I had one of them, and I so wore that, it. That person Wade that I just talked about, who, yeah, who and he tattoo man now. Yeah, he designed that. Did he really? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering correctly. I'm sure you'll message me and go, no, I didn't design that, but I'm pretty sure he did. Um, credit where credits due to whoever did yeah. it, but fuck. I might have been one of Jake's mates. So there was a whole like, there was a lot of tattooists kind of. I, thought, I wore that shirt until the grey print like cracked completely. Like half of the letters were missing. Like yep. yeah, I wore I wore the fuck out of that shirt, man. It was amazing. Anyway, so so that was amazing of that kind of time when you really changed shit up. Can you um, give us a little bit of info as to how how that all came about? Like so, you, you're doing this other band, and then how did the abandonment start, and what was the kind of ethos in the writing process there? Um. So as hope fades, kind of faded. Um, hope faded. Yes, hope did fade very suddenly on as hope fades. But uh, Manol, the guitarist, and I wanted to keep going, and um, we wanted to rope Joel into it because he's a great drummer. Another Hello. creaky door. N- another creaky door. Yeah. G'day. How you going? It's Justin. G'day, Justin. Hey Justin guys. is in here. He's got his guitar case in hand. That's it. Yeah. How's it going? Good, bro. Uh, nice to meet you, man. Hey, how you going? Sorry, listeners. Fantastic. All right, cool. So you wanted to rope Joel in. Yep. And how did that go? What did you say? What was the pitch? Well, he had to learn how to double kick. Oh, he, he, didn't, he couldn't double kick before then? Uh, not that he couldn't, he just didn't. So he never played double kick. In his punk bands, he always played single foot. And he did what double kicks do, but with single foot. And we're like, we want to do this metal band, kind of continue where from as I face kind of left, but get faster and more technical. And um, which is what we're wanting to do. But we're kind of, um, you know, with bands, you kind of you have to go with the group unless you're running the show yourself, um, and you have to play to the limitations of your musicians. So mm. um, our drummer at the time couldn't play that as fast in as hope fades and just wasn't really interested he wanted to focus on work and which is fine yeah um and like so you were saying before some people maybe just do it because it's a fun thing to do maybe they don't have that thing inside them that pushes them to keep creating like you were talking yeah. about before. i'm sure you know? he did he's fine he's found it in different avenues he's yeah a graphic designer so he's put it there and he's really he's been really successful in that um but we wanted to go on and just get faster and that was really as far as the and that was the that was the ethos. It's like we just want yeah. to get faster. Get yeah, it's better, never get. never really like a like sit around and go right. What are we going to do? It was just like we want to play faster. Like the riffs we were writing were faster and more complicated, and um, so we wanted Joel who could play fast, but he had to learn double kick, which he took to like a you know duck to water. He did very well. <laughs> um, and Boehner was around for a bit doing vocals, and then he was just you know doing her nightmare. Was busy, started to get busy then, and yeah. For a long time, we just jammed and wrote songs and didn't have a singer. Um, Jake kind of came in and was interested because we knew Jake from when he was in a band called Gloom. Um, we played a show with them and we're like, he's a great vocalist and we kind of wanted him to be involved. But he was not, he really had a, just wasn't at a place to do it. So it was just um, the three guitar, like two guitars and bass player, which was me from from As Hope Fades. And, um, and Joel, and we just wrote songs probably for nine months. Wow. Just playing. Here it comes again. 
We're getting towards the pointy end of uh, you having to rehearse based on the uh, no, gear. This is super early. Yeah, you punctual. Okay. We said two, didn't we? <laughs> you don't even try to be quiet. Just walk in. Yeah. That, we'll have to edit out the Adams <laughs> family creaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. All right. Cool. Great. So let's 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 move on. So so the abandonment was so at this point. So did you get did you snag him on vocals for how long? Like but he was interested and then he was not interested and then we just kept going. So and um, our our guitarist at the time, Chris Jones, who's now another tattooist in this group of people, and a phenomenal one at that who works at Vic Market. Um, he just he was losing the drive to do it as well. Um, probably wasn't keeping up technically with us at the time because we, we kind of ran with it. We went from where we were all at at As Hope Fades and then Manol and I kind of just went, we want to do this, which was like miles past other people. We yeah. kinda, there was no like gradual build up. We were just like, we took a whole big jump forward and we're like, we want to play this fast now. And it's like, everyone's like, well, this is really fucking hard. Um, so you know, you're like, but people are gonna fucking love it though. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't even really thinking about that. We didn't. Yeah, I don't know. That's never been a factor for me. Oh, cool. I never think about what people are gonna think of it really. <laughs> um, but we did that, and we just jammed, and then Chris kind of just went, "Look, I, I want to work." So he wanted to focus on work. He wasn't enjoying it because it was just he just wasn't enjoying it. So, and he like wrote a lot of stuff in As Hope Fades. And then it kind of went from him writing a lot of stuff to Manol and I writing a lot of stuff. And so it may have, you know, felt like it pushed him away from mm. that creative input a bit. And, um, yeah, he just lost interest and moved on. We're still all really good mates. So no, hopefully no bad blood there. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we just, we just jammed a lot and then Jake became available again and keen, so... Then it was on and we roped another warnable person in on guitar. And um, he didn't last that long, but um, yeah, I think we roped another Portland person in guitar and guitar on that. And yeah, <laughs> this is all before the first demo. I think, I oh know, we did the first demo with the original warnable guitarist who we pulled in and um, then started to kind of play a lot. And then, you know, that gets hard for some people. Yeah. They're not into it or. It's not working. Oh yeah, it's a big commitment, dying. right? Yeah. Like, you know, for for little payoff. If you if it's something that you're not oh, really enjoying, like yeah. you just little to no payoff. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from just doing it, like the doing it is the the payoff. And yeah. If that's enough, then you'll do it. If, if that's the thing that you enjoy doing, you'll find a way to make that. That's it. You know, work. Yeah. So and then so how long did the abandonment exist for in like a time period? Like how I long? Think, I think it was only six years or something. Six years. Yeah. Wow. Two thousand and six to. 11, so five. Yeah, wow. Okay, oh, cool. no, maybe 2005 to 2011. Yeah. So I reckon that Potato Shed show would have been probably about 2005, I reckon. Yeah, well, if the EP was out, it was 2006. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So I would, have been, I would have been year 12 at the time. <laughs> 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 Which is fucking crazy. Yeah. Very long time ago now. But um, anyway, so, so then the abandonment, you know, you reached, you know, levels of success, I guess. Like, no, we didn't. What? No, we're busy. But like, I'm <laughs> buying your CD and Missing Link, you know, like I'm not buying it from a show, like I'm getting it from a store because I want it. Like that's... Yeah, sure. That's pretty good. 
Yeah, look, uh, people liked us, but we yeah. weren't successful really. In oh, sorry, yeah, I guess success is a you know it's a it's a nebulous word that can mean yeah, lots sure. of different things. You know, I guess how you attribute success, but yeah, sure, people, some people liked us. It wasn't Rory and some other people. Yeah, a couple, couple of dudes from Geelong and um, Mel. Our, yeah, Mel, and Mel and our mates mates from back home. You know, but no, we did look, we did all right. We we certainly did the band. Uh, more with more effort than we got from it so we tried to treat it like a full-time band but it never really got past that part-time band yeah. level and that's probably has a lot to do with our um, willingness to jump ship and tour overseas because that was kind of how anyone at the time Parkway were mm. you know they they were bigger than us of course and Prom Queen were bigger than us of course but how they then got to that next level was to go overseas, mm. and we just weren't there. None of us could afford it. None of us wanted to leave what we were, else we were doing to just do that. It you weren't willing to like sleep in a field in the middle of nowhere yeah. in your sleeping bags. It was just like I was, you know, from the twelve years I lived in Melbourne, I was just perpetually broke. So, and I never had a car, and I was always that dude in the band that needed a lift and couldn't transport his own gear and. Now that I've got a car, I drive. I willingly drive everyone around just to repay that karma. <laughs> Very good. Um, but it just like we we put a lot of effort into it, but I think we missed that step, that next step. Yeah, and that's yeah. a hard step to to get over as well. Like when it comes to yeah, it's a it's a financial thing, it's a maturity thing, it's yeah. a there's so many factors to make to make a band successful, man. Like yeah. what, in, in which. I guess more of a traditional sense of the word successful. Like you got yeah. to fucking push really sure. hard. And I think we put we focus more of that that attention on the music. Yeah. And the performance of the music. So we were always known as a tight band, and we prided ourselves on being tight. And and so. the on stage performance was, you know, like uh, electric. You know, like you guys are fucking going ape shit up there. You yeah. Know? Like, and that's another thing that's. You know, I think it's what led to my obsession now, like one of my favourite bands still is Dillinger. And I think mm. you planted those seeds pretty early on of like seeing that kind of frantic yeah. on stage stuff. It's like there's nothing like it. It's like a drug when you're watching it live, you know, especially, you know, AA, little kids seeing that. You're just like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. Like it, it feels so, yeah, electric. Yeah. There's something happening in that. So I think that has certainly captured a lot of people's imagination. Yeah, you, know? sure. you probably planted some seeds along the way with a couple of bands that... Maybe you don't know that you've influenced them in some way along well, the way. If we have, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely think that's the case. Yeah. So let's jump, because we're, we're, we're running low on time. We're an hour in. We haven't even got to fucking Encircling C yet. So, <laughs> so <laughs> and, we, and we still got to talk about the Perfect Gym playlist. Um, so let's jump. So what happened from abandonment to Encircling C? There's a, a big gap of time there. Is there well, a big gap no, of time or was it always? There wasn't. There was overlap of time. Oh, really? Encircling C started in the last two years of the abandonment. Oh, wow. And it just started as a kind of just a conversation between me and one of the original members who's no longer in the band, wanting to do some... Who, Well, I did Worms of the Earth in this period too where I was a vocalist for that. And it was kind of like a post-metal, stonery doom mm. band. And he, he was the bass player. Dace was the bass player in that band. And um, we talked about doing some noise stuff. Um, together collaborating mm -hmm. with vocals and guitar and and how does at that time so was you said it was 2011 ish when that ended uh, certainly it was 2009 
Wow. So, like, what's in the post-metal scene that you're listening to at the time that you're going, like, oh, fuck, we should do something like this? Like, or how do you get influenced to do something the, like that? I guess the impetus of that band was probably Corrupted, um, Japanese doom band. Right. So we were kind of, like, talking about doing this thing, and I had organised a show for Robotosaurus and the network from the States. And they, we had Party Vibes played. Um, can't remember the other band. And I was like, I want to do a noise thing to open. So I said to Dace, let's do this thing. Um, we'll just kind of make it like guitar drone, like Corrupted Sun sort of vibes, but yeah. with vocals. And um, he's like, yeah, cool. He's like, well, let's get, you know, Ratty in on drums and he can do some stuff. And it was going to just be like improv sort of stuff. And then I wrote some riffs, which became the first album. And we jammed for two weeks and played the show. Wow. Yeah. Fuck, so this has all been really long in, yeah, in, its, in its inception. Well, yeah, so Encircling Sea has gone 10 years this year. Fuck, really? Yeah, which is mental because we're just kind of... It just feels, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't feel like 10 years, it just feels like it's all very in the, this now pocket of time. You know, yeah, sure. When you think, when you, when you wind back the clock, you're like, fuck, well, that was 10 years. Yeah, That's well, I remember Dace actually saying to me in the early days, he's like, we're going to be banned for like 10 years or something, aren't we? I was like, yeah, sure, like just a casual conversation because it was about something else. He was like, because I want you to do this or whatever, show me how to do this or it was whatever, I can't even remember it. But I remember that but being you knew said. it was going to take 10 years? Well, no, I, I was casually mentioned and I was kind of like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, we will. Shit. Not thinking that we would, actually, and it would come about so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but he's obviously no longer in the band, but um, and the band's face has changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly more members now than there has been. There's five of us, and um, yeah, it's it, it's been going for a while. Yeah. So yeah, we did that. At the demo, we call it a demo. People call it our first album, um, which you know was recorded probably a month after we played the first show, which was only two weeks into doing the band. So it was all done very quickly, and then we wrote and recorded the second album very quickly as well. Um, and then by the time we put out that second album, we were already playing songs off the next album. And it just, and then it slowed down. So it was once a forgotten land came out that everything changed, sort of thing. Shit. So that was when I moved, which is what the change was. Yeah, right. So tell us about that. So at this point, where'd you move to? So, yeah, you've, living... You've done your time in Melbourne. You've been there for, what was it, 12 years, did you say? Yeah, and I was engaged and really unhappy with living in the city, which probably has a lot more to do... less to do with the city than I kind of gave it credit for at the time. So I just hated living in the city, had really kind of connected to this kind of idea of being uh, in nature and, um, and black metal kind of was my driving force there oh, yeah and uh, based on hearing about your <coughs> upbringing you know like always being outside always yeah be, you know like it, it, it's i feel like it'd be hard to be trapped in the city you know like yeah, you wouldn't have that connection to, to anything sure and i didn't think i needed it as much as i did and then it kind of got to a point where it was like okay it has to end now because i need it so much that because we never had a car and um we just didn't get out. So yeah, you didn't have that freedom to just get away for a weekend. Always or. in the city. Mm. So unless it was going back home for Christmas and stuff, and then it was back in Warrnambool, which is like, okay. Um, <laughs> it's like the lesser of two evils. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's some outdoor stuff, but there's Warrnambool. So 
shit. Okay, so, and then, so, at what point, so you, you moved up? Yeah, we moved to southwest, the far south coast of New South Wales, so probably about two hours over the border, but on the coast. Mm-hmm. So, hour and a half south of Batemans Bay, to near a place called Tilba, to where my wife grew up and lived on her family property. They had 100 acres in the bush, and uh, we lived with them for a little while um, with the intention of building a house on the property next door, which the family owned. So it was all up at like 120, 130 acres or mm-hmm. something. And um, yeah, it kind of didn't go as planned initially. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a bit of a bush version of Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, like having <laughs> having like yeah. your in-laws there all the time. Sure, and yeah, look, it wasn't easy and it's still not easy. Like the, that relationship's hard on many levels. Um, like I love my wife's family. But I don't fit into it. That's taxing on anyone. I don't fit into it very well. And look, we moved up there because my wife was pregnant. So we were like going to make a, a new life with our own family. And yeah. um, by the time my son was born, it was time to just move out and get our own place. So we moved nearby, like 35 k's away. And had our own little house while he was growing up and then moved a bit closer and then um, we were trying to establish a market garden, a commercial market garden on the property that we were eventually going to build the house on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were doing that for a couple of years, just bit by bit. And then we got to a year where we were like, okay, we're going to make a go of this and you know, bring a crop to market for the first time. What kind of crops did you have in mind? It's just fruit and veg. So um, just we wanted to just do organic fruit and veg. So, so we planted our biggest grow effort was um it was just staple stuff so we did corn we did zucchini cucumber potatoes tomatoes silver beet pumpkins i think we tried watermelon at one point um beans lots of stuff sick so but we ran out of water that year so we lost most of it (laughs) so it either didn't come up or we lost it or it was inedible so um we were like, okay, well, we can't really do this unless we're on the property. So we were only five k's away, but that five k's meant that um, it took our morning out. So by the time we got up and like did breakfast and we were like established, never been a morning person, so it was a bit hard to get there early enough. It would be like eleven o'clock by the time we got there, and then you're in the middle of the sun. And we're down there. Our watering system, watering system was very primitive. It's like we'll go into the the creek with buckets in the back like big uh, olive drums in the back of the ute yeah right them up, hand pailing it in and then driving the bucket over and hand watering and then we rigged up a better system with a, a fire hose and that worked for a while and then the creek went dry so oh. there's not much we could do there um so we put a lot of effort into that and then we're like this is not really going to work let's focus it's not going to work yet we're not there yet let's get in let's build the house yeah was, so then we concentrated on building a house which was a mud brick house that we're going to build ourselves and we got within two days of laying bricks on that we had our slab down we had the site all cleared and landscaped and um, we were just about to lay bricks and then we moved back to Warrnambool. <laughs> so what was that what was the, where, what was the decision there? Uh, there wasn't really a decision and we had a myself and my father-in-law had a massive falling out that just rendered it impossible to live there anymore. Right. So, and that's still two year, two and a half years on. 
still wow. haven't spoken to him. So. so you've been back in Warrnambool for two and a half years? Roughly, yeah. Wow. And so what's that like now? So you're a dad now, you're back in Warrnambool. Are you seeing some of the parallels that when you were there as a kid? Like, what's Yeah, the... sure. Like, my kids are old enough to want to be outside all the time and we can give them that, but we miss the bush. Yeah. Know? We miss, like, there's lots of things we don't miss. We don't miss ticks. We don't miss mosquitoes. Um, like, in, you know, proportions that are just make your life uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. Um, we don't miss the stifling heat of being in the middle of a forest, but we miss the forest immensely. We miss the winters up there were beautiful. Um, uh, we just miss being in the bush. We live in town now. So yeah. Yeah, we went up there to connect with nature and we did that, but that um, wasn't, wasn't in and of itself enough, which, you know, I've talked about before and the kind of impetus of the band, what the band's always talked about, is my own personal kind of journey with how I'm processing all this stuff. Yeah. So the band's always been about that. The first one was kind of where I was at with living in the, the first album, was where I was living in the city and, you know, pretty much at the end of my rope with living. Um, and then the next album was written after, like, a kind of epiphany with a connection to nature. And so the move there was to get into nature and live a seasonally connected life, celebrate the solstices and equinoxes with like an austere quality where we were like wanting to do it genuinely, um, not in some sort of Wiccan, you know, pur yeah. purple velvet way, you know, yes. <laughs> like our lovely tablecloth here. Yeah, no, I know exactly what it you just, mean. I yeah, think we wanted to people, live in. People seem to think they have to be that way. Like if you do do it, it has to be the, the Wiccan kind of way. And it yeah. it, you can't just be like, well, it's nature and we're a part of nature and yeah. cycles and like it's all natural things that happen. Sure. You know, so that's very cool. And there's definitely a sense of that in the music, you know, like there's a real energy to the music um, that feels very... Yeah, it just feels very soundscapey. Like it, it almost paints a picture when you listen to it, at, le at least for me, because I kind of, the way I listen to music and the way I kind of take that in is that you kind of, you know, you'll start to see imagery. Like the same way if you read a book, you know, you start mm -hmm. to kind of picture stuff. And everything that you've done with Encircling Sea and the artwork and even, you know, like the photos that you guys have and, and the album artwork and all these things, it's very, it's very connected to that kind of stuff. Sure. It feels that way. And it's yeah. something that I think a lot of bands struggle to maybe tie their themes and ideas and stuff that kind of pushes the music to the artwork that reflects that. Mm -hmm. And I think that you guys do a really good job of like synchronizing that feel, you know, and, and everything you've talked about just now, is like, oh yeah, cool. That sounds yeah. exactly what <laughs> I expected, you know, when, when you hear that music, because yeah. there's something quite special about that. But I think what helps with that is when you can do it yourself. Mm. So the art for the band's always been done within the band. So Dace did a lot of shirts when he was in the band and did art for the albums and I do photography and have done I did all the art for the new record um, and now that Justin's in the band he's doing art for the band as well right. so like so you all understand it well enough because you're in it so yeah. you can do it you can give it do it justice I guess yeah and I think like having people outside if they're not connected to you if they're not your friend or something um, or a fan of the band can lead to that disconnect in your mm. visual reputation of your band, representation of your band and the, how what you're intending it, it gets missed so i'm using lots of hand gestures you can't <laughs> see <laughs> no, 
not great on a podcast, but no. I'm sure people understand exactly what we're talking about. It helps about, me so. formulate my words. Exactly. Oh, I'm a big hands guy as well. Um, so that's fantastic. We're, we're, we're jumping on to, you mentioned the new album. Mm-hmm. Um, it won the Victorian Music Award last year. Yeah, Best Heavy Album last Best year. Best Heavy Album last year. Now, that award just came around just before uh, another one of Joel's recorded uh, albums, Black Helm, was nominated. Yep, our so, friends in Soul Dusk won it. And, which was fantastic. So tell us about that experience of being nominated. Like, how did you find out, for example, like that you were nominated for this award? Did you know it existed before that? No. Yeah. No, I'm, I've been a member of Music Victoria for a uh, I'm probably a lapsed member now, but I have been a member for a long time, or was a member for a long time. And um, I don't know how I found out. So I think someone just messaged me and said, yeah. hey, you've been nominated, or even, we may have even got, and the band got an email about it. I was in Adelaide at the time. Um, last, I think I was in Adelaide. I don't know. Last year, my wife was a surrogate for her cousin, and we had a gestational surrogacy. Wow. And gave birth to a healthy baby boy for her. Um, beautiful. So we spent a few months living in Adelaide to, to give birth to the baby and do all that stuff. And so you were just sitting around, you get an email probably from someone being like, congratulations, and you are like, Yeah, what? so I, I can't remember how it came up, but I think someone just told me, and I was just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, um, just an odd thing. Like, I was like, oh, well, it didn't, you, I didn't think it had happened that we'd get nominated for anything. Yeah, and then to um, win as well. Like, what was that? Did you, did to you win to was weirder. Did you make a speech? Did you? Yeah, make, we did make a speech. What was this? Did you prepare a speech? Or no, was no. I loosely did because I was like, I don't want to get caught off guard. Exactly. It's if, that thing where you don't want to be, yeah. you don't want to be like, oh, I'm going to prepare this perfect speech, but you also don't want to like win and then be like, uh. Yeah, and I was somewhere in the middle of that. So I was like, look, I'll just think about some things because if the, that million to one chance that we win, which we'd had no inkling that that yeah. was going to happen we went to the ceremony literally to just drink free beer and and just hang out we were like when did you get the opportunity to like get on the red carpet and go yeah. to an award show like that this is cool let's do this and we just went to have a good time we were seated way up the back we were behind another band that i'd never heard of and um high tension were also nominated and they were down the front and we were just like high tension's gonna win for sure like yeah. you know they're the most popular band um, but it was an industry-voted thing, so. But I was, we were sure high tension would win, just because it's probably more digestible and. And it was a great <coughs> album. It was. Um, I I can't say I've listened to the whole thing, but what I have heard, I like, and I love Mike, the guitarist. He's a good, good human, and does very good music. So, um, we're just like they're going to win, and they read out the nominations, and then like, and the winner is, and we were like high tension ourselves like they're gonna win and they said encircling C and there was just this stunned silence in the crowd and our drummer Matt just goes what the fuck (laughs) and we were just like what like just completely flawed it's like you need to get up now you need to you need to walk to the stage like probably six six beers deep already just like that's not happening then they're like all right and they're clapping kind of looking out into the crowd just going where is this band they went this fucking ragtag bunch of humans comes down and everyone's like who the hell are these guys and there was probably like four or five people in the crowd that knew <laughs> knew us that knew and they're you. just like fuck yes <laughs> this is amazing and we were like uh, like i think the first thing i said when i got up there was that was a fucking surprise like <laughs> just blown away i was bad, like just blown away it did like it doesn't awards don't matter shit but it's nice it's like 
Yeah. It's nice to have all that <coughs> hard work recognised. Yeah, and I like the fact that it was for an album, not for a popularity contest or live performance or any of that stuff. It was for the work that we put out. So it was nice to be recognised for that. Yeah, mm. I, I think that you can take it in lots of different ways, but the way to take that's the best way. It's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it was just like, Gratitude. you know, yeah, just be grateful. Like, that was that's really cool. Yeah. Like, I don't know the behind the scenes working, how what went on. and You don't know how, like, Joel was, like, paying off someone. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> Victoria. To yeah, with all, all that money he's making. <laughs> he just goes to someone with, like, a briefcase full of cash. Yeah. He's like, can you make this album win just so it builds up my business? <laughs> You know the truth, Joel. Yeah, um, that's it. I'll, I'll get to the bottom of this with my investigative podcasting. Yeah. You know, I'll start asking around. Yeah, have him <laughs> on again and just grill him 60 minutes style. I'll yeah. edit it up as well to make him seem even worse. Than yeah, just take him out of context. That'd be and great. All that stuff. But yeah, it was a complete surprise and like, yeah, awesome. Cool. Thank you. That was really nice. Wow. That's pretty much where it starts and ends. Like that was... And it's, it's like a cool thing that like uh, for me... To, to come in from that newer album, that's my kind of entry point into Encircling sure. C, and not realising it had that much, you know, breadth of its, uh, you know, existence as sure. well. Like, that must feel really cool for it that to all pay off it. You know, it started based on you needing to get away, and then you do that, and you f- make this record that wins something, yeah. you know? Like, that must like, feel like... And it's like, and every record we've done has been extremely personal for me because it's about, like, lyrically and thematically about me. Mm. So... <laughs> and not that it's not about the other guys, <laughs> but it is. It's it's pretty. I'm very attached to them. Yeah. Um. So it's it's kind of hard for me to just like they're kind of things that I do and let go of. And obviously, with Encircling C, we play live shows, so I can't totally let it go. I need to connect with it in a different way. But mm. the records themselves, they're like this very intensive process that you put a lot of effort into, and then it's out, and you're kind of like, all right. See you later. It's a cathartic process yeah. to be able to release that. And That's it. And yeah. with other projects that I've done um, that I have been able to put it out and then maybe do one live performance or none and just literally wipe my hands of it. Yeah. So and that must feel nice to be able to do that. Yeah. You know. And it's just about it's letting go sort of thing. So and I guess it all comes back to you saying before how like you, you have to create stuff, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a drive to do. And then when it's done, you don't have to do it again. But yeah. it's like, oh, it's out of my system now. Yeah. The wall's yeah. been painted. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, that album was um, written through a really weird time. It was written towards the end of living up the coast. Um, and a lot of stuff led to the falling out. So there's a lot of interpersonal stuff that was going on in the family that wasn't fun. I was dealing with a lot of you know, depression, anxiety issues that mm. were manifesting in ways that weren't pleasant for my family. Yeah. Which was, you know, probably drinking too much, not to an alcoholic level, but just like every night having three or four beers. Needing to kind of dull, like dull those voices, like the, the kind oh, of... Not, not a, oh, I couldn't even put establish a need of why that was just happening. Right. <clears throat> um, it was probably because of feeling unsettled and not connected to what we're doing enough. Or just being unhappy, mm. um, but I couldn't put a need on it. It was just happening. I was just really stressed out all the time and yeah. angry, basically. Well, this, this brings up a really good segue because I want to talk to you about like your <coughs> your gym and lifting and, and all this kind of stuff, sure. um, which I could imagine because for me it's certainly a great way to kind of like help you know when it comes to unstable 
not unstable, but when mental health is wavering, sure. yep. you know, uh, getting in the gym is something that, that I find is good for me to mm-hmm. like to kind of clear all those voices. Is that kind of how you got into lifting as seriously as you did? Or how did you find that? How, or how did it find you? Um, I'd been, never worked out in my life. Like, did sport when I was a kid, but ne- mm. never been in a gym. Like, couldn't tell you what a set or a rep was. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't. <laughs> yeah. Um, had tried to kind of get into doing a home gym, like a bit of a strongman cross, crossfit slash crops, crossfit mixed with, you know, logs and tyres and ropes and shit like that. Manly like, stuff. Yeah. I was just like, well, how, how I lived so far away from any gym. Well, how am I going to do this at home without any money? So we'll chainsaw up some logs, get some old tractor tyres and find some old rope and was doing log drags and log carries and um, tire flips and sledgehammer yeah. hits and all that stuff. But I didn't really understand it enough <coughs> to make it into a thing. I just kind of got bored of it because I didn't understand it. Um, and then when we moved back here, back to Victoria, very suddenly something needed to happen, something I needed to fix myself, basically. So mm. I, driv- I pushed everyone away with my um, behaviour, basically. And my wife said at the time, you really you, you need to make some drastic changes in six months. Or this is just like we're going to, it's going to be shit. Yeah. It's like, I can't do it anymore if you don't fix stuff in six months. So, and it wasn't like completely change yourself. It was just like make some changes. Yeah. Try and get better. <coughs> and so my niece, uh, her boyfriend at the time, now husband, is a personal trainer. I just said, can you train me? I'll come and do some sessions with you or whatever. And he just said, just come and train when I train and do what I do. So he taught me that. And it was just a basic bodybuilding split, four day, four or five days, you know, chest, arms, legs, whatever. Uh, and I quickly kind of, I loved it, for one. After so what, what, what was that? click point for you to be like I love this like what what how did it make you feel or what well, you was just, different to you feel good after working out anyway then that endorphin release was good like yeah. the whole time I lived up the coast <clears throat> I didn't play music live really very much so there wasn't that cathartic physical experience I'd got I wrote a bunch of records and there was like a mental kind of release but there wasn't a physical one and I think that that was the biggest in hindsight the biggest kind of downside to not the thing you were missing that was the thing i was missing the most and it was like um i was very it's very isolating up there living so far away from people and not really knowing anyone having to make new friends in your 30s and being away from your established friendships and your like regular connections with your bandmates and something you do that's really physical and like a full body workout i was you know doing the abandonment jamming once or twice a week yeah and at that point i was the vocalist towards the end um <clears throat> well, for the last few years of the band, so I was yeah, doing that's, this. That's high intensity, man. You know, yeah. like, and that kept me pretty level. Mm. That, and then we moved away, and I was socially socially isolated, and also had no physical outlet, and so it manifested very poorly. And then when I got into the gym, I was like, "Hey, this is that that, is that thing I've been missing." Yeah, and um, but then through that process, I just kind of f- fell in love with power lifts. So my nephew i don't want to call him my nephew because he's like not that much younger than me but (coughs) um my niece's husband i call him yeah uh he so there was obviously squat bench and deadlift within the traditional bodybuilding split 
and I was just like, hey, I really like deadlifting. That's really cool. And I had a bad back since I was 21, injured at work. And um, I think I hurt my back pretty early on in like this, maybe the second time I was deadlifting. Yeah. And I was kind of, normally, I think I would have been like, well, fuck that, I can't do it. But I was like, I'm going to master this lift because I want my back to get strong. Yeah. I'm sick of having a bad, like any time I did physical work, my back would just ache. Mm. And, um, I just couldn't do it. So It's something that any young <clears throat> person, you'd be like, don't do that, I'll hurt your back. Like, nah, fuck, it's fine. I'll, I'm sweet. Like, I'm made of rubber. And then, yeah, you get a little bit older and you're like, fuck, I wish I hadn't ever <laughs> I wish I had listened to people. Yeah. yeah. And then people tell you about that, that with deadlifting. They're like, oh, deadlifting's going to hurt your back. And you're like, well, not if you do it right. Yeah. It's actually going to strengthen your back. So I just kind of fell in love with that, with that strain. And, you know, the first time I properly maxed out and, like, with good enough form to like hold the lift and come through and you get that jittery strain where you almost black out and you, that adrenaline rush off and you've got it. the weight belt that's like crushing you you know yeah, like well, you shouldn't be wearing it that tight but <laughs> shouldn't be crushing you um but well, yeah sure it's a thing that's happening at the same time yeah right? like they're all these little things that like, oh, are it's part of that. wholeheartedly uncomfortable and unpleasant but that once you get through it and you put the weight down, you're like, holy shit, I feel amazing. That was awesome. I can, you're almost like you're at the edge. It's like an extreme thing you can do. Yeah. Where you're probably not going to die, but you <laughs> kind of find out what you're made of. Yeah. You know, you your might, legs might be a bit fucked afterwards. And yeah, sure. Yeah. I just kind of fell in love with it and haven't looked back. Right. So we, what? So you still obviously do you keep all the other like do you keep it all rounded or is it all deadlift like what's your kind of regime what are you working on like so i compete in powerlifting so powerlifting as a sport is squat bench and deadlift yep so that's my main focus um but you train everything so i do i train in a method that's called the conjugate method and that's basically i have two upper body days and two lower body days a week and the lower body days are squat dead and then variations so hinges and anything that involves your legs, building that up, and um, the upper body days are obviously bench press related, but they're kind of one's a max effort where you put, you work up to something that's really heavy and learn how to strain, uh, and then your other days are working on speed at light weights. So that's, I train four days a week and I do that. Wow, that's intense, dude. Yeah, I mean, I've competed three times now, so, and it's kind of just my, I guess, like I was talking about before, I find something and I get very focused on it that's powerlifting for me now yeah so and it's geez it's not a bad thing to be doing you know like it's keeping you it's keeping your mental health kind of level it's keeping you fit it's keeping you kind of focused yeah and then that energy you have you can put into like everyday life like sure. that's something that I've noticed when I like lack doing gymming you're just like fuck everything's hard like ev- everything is just more difficult but then when yeah. you go to the gym and that's a more constant thing for you you can like oh fuck the day is not nearly as taxing you know yeah sure and you find a lot. Of, you find out a lot about stuff about yourself in the gym when you mm. push yourself as hard as you do in powerlifting. Like you find where your mental limits are, and you know how to control your emotions a lot in terms of like, okay, I need to. You need to get psyched up to hit a max effort lift, but you need to control it because otherwise it's wasted energy. You need yeah. to if you're going down for like a max squat that's you know it feels like life or death when you've got a couple hundred kilos on you on your back and if you're not going to come up you know 
you got to push through it. So you got to you find that mental barrier, and it teaches you to be more resilient. Can we can we talk like weights, not to brag or anything, but give <coughs> give the listeners like a bit of a, a an idea of how much weight you are benching, squatting, deadlifting. Um, so in my last competition, I squatted two thirty five. <laughs> I have a terrible bench press that I only hit a hundred then, um, but have done one ten for a double in the gym. Um, but my bench press is by far my weakest lift and um, I think that comes from never training really. Yeah. You know, I don't have that upper body build up. A lot of people come into powerlifting after being training for a long time. Yeah. In some light, you know, whether it's for footy or just in general and like a lot of bodybuilding builds your chest a lot. Yeah, I, sure. I just don't have that and I had it, not to make excuses, but I had an injury. <laughs> In my shoulder that kind of kept my bench press yeah, plateaued sure. for a year, and I've only been training for two two and a half years. So, and then what about the what about the deadlift? Deadlift what? is um, I, I hit two thirty in competition. Um, it's just I think I've hit more than that in the gym. Yeah, but yeah. That's a stupid amount of weight. Like, how many discs are on each side of the bar? Like, that, to to make two thirty, like, what are you putting on? Like, are you putting like fifty kilo discs or like twenty kilos? Like, what? no. So in competition, we use skinny powerlifting plates that uh -huh. are calibrated to weigh within like a very small margin of that weight, and they're skinny. They're like an inch thick. So two thirty, I think, is four twenty fives a side, and like uh, maybe a five or. 2.5, I can't remember. Crazy. Something like that. Yeah, it looks better with bumper plates that fill up the whole bar and stuff. But, you know, when you get in powerlifting competitions, they um, crush that. Yeah, you got to make it efficient, you know. you got to, like, make yeah, it... Yeah, well, you know, you're going up there and you're doing four plates a side and then, you know, someone in your same weight class is doing six or seven plates a side. And, you know, you come, like, getting out. So powerlifting as a sport is based on your total. So you put your best lifts of all three lifts together to make a total at the end, and that's how your competition's ranked. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm so new to training that I'm hundreds of kilos behind. So, you, you know, got guys... But like you said, this has only been for, like, what, the last two years, did you say? Yeah, so since we were back in Warrnambool, so two yeah. and a half years. It's pretty impressive, though, for, you know, people that be training all their lives, so that you've just kind of come into this, found this focus, and it's really impressive, dude. Thanks. I'm hoping that listeners will be like, fuck, i got to get to the gym now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm like, you know, like a born-again Christian with the gym. Like I did, would tell anybody who listen that you got shit that you need to figure out. You feel lost in direction. You feel like you've got no purpose. It's the, the gym will give it to you if you take it serious enough. I and you'll learn a lot about yourself doing it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, now let's talk about the shit music they play in gyms. <laughs> So, like, when you're doing your lifts, like, do you have headphones on? Is that, is that, how do you feel about headphones in the gym? Is um, music cheating? It can, it can be, because yeah. when you get to competition, you don't have music. Yeah. Um, and you don't have the focus that music gives you. Like, a lot of people wear headphones right up until the bit that they go on the platform. Mm -hmm. And your handler or your coach will take your headphones off for you, or you'll take them and just chuck them. But um, I've kind of tried to train with no, motiv no external motivation. Which Sorry. is bad because <coughs> then the shit music they're playing in the gym is all you can hear and it's distracting. Yeah, but you have to, you have to be able to focus your energy inward enough to not rely on any external motivation and not be brought down by that external motivation because mm -hmm. you could be at a competition and the crowd just, you know, like me, I'm totaling, you know, uh, mid 500s 
and the guys in my weight class who are winning are totaling 800. You know, Whoa. so <coughs> they're not super excited to watch me lift. So that energy has to come from me. Yeah. Um, and maybe my wife is there going, yeah, as loud as she can. What about the kids? Are the kids there as well? No, not at the moment. They're a bit, um, it's a bit tricky with bringing them all the way to Melbourne. It's just, yeah, it's just a bit tricky at the moment. So like when they're a little bit older, maybe. I just can't wait to have that, like that moment for your kids when they're going to see pictures of this or video or something later on and be like, that's dad yeah. <laughs> lifting. Like. Well, they see anyone lifting with a beard and a shaved head on, like if I'm on the phone and it's all lifting that I'm following on Instagram or whatever. Like, is that you? I'm like, no, that's not me. It looks like you. It's like, wow, you're really strong, dad. Like, you know. They see the dude from Game of Thrones. They're like, is that you? Yeah, I'm, yeah they've asked some, if some very strong, very muscly, yeah, buff looking dudes are me. So I'm like, yeah, thanks, but no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's very lovely of yeah. them to, to say that. <laughs> Whether it's not naivete or it's uh, them being, you know, proud, proud kids, maybe. Yeah. But the music is like sometimes I wear headphones. Um, probably close to competition, I won't wear them. Mm. I just think it's something that you you can't. It's uh, something you can't control to meet. You need to. Um, have that the ability to turn it on it's like pre-workout or caffeine or whatever like i take caffeine instead of pre-workout because i only want the caffeine from it like when you say take caffeine is that a weird way of saying drinking coffee or are you putting no caffeine i'm taking caffeine like pills oh yeah, cool. yeah so if you're taking pre-workout generally the best thing you're getting from it is the caffeine that's right. that's improving your performance so you're just gonna s- you cut out the middleman and yeah. just have the caffeine pills caffeine in pills yeah is that essentially no dose is that what no dose is yep are you taking no-dos pre-work? Like, uh, I bought some stronger ones off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so mine are like 200 milligrams of caffeine Fuck. per pill. It's like 16-year-old me knew there were stronger pills than no-dos out there. Yeah. <laughs> in the day. And they're very easy and cheap to get. <laughs> but um, I don't take them that often, usually, again, further from competition because you're not going to take it in, in comp because you'll burn out too quick. But Yeah. Um, yeah, there's been studies into the effects of caffeine and performance, and they suggest that two to three, two to three milligrams per kilo of body weight is optimal performance. So wow. that's like 600 milligrams for some people. I take at most 400 mm. before a big workout, and it's like then you can't do any fine motor skills stuff because you're just a jittery mess. I was gonna <laughs> yeah. say, yeah, wow, um, that's intense. But but yeah, you can lift just, that heavy thing real good, though. Yeah, and that can give you focus and, like, in powerlifting, ammonia is big, so smelling salts. Oh. Um, everyone will smell before. <laughs> mini, mini, mini creaky out of the sound <laughs> um, People will smell before a big lift and stuff like that. Wow. To, you know, again, there's studies into how that focuses your mind. stuff. But if you rely on that stuff too much while you train and then that variable's taken out when you're at a meet, you're going to perform poorly. Yeah. So try and, yeah, just I'd put up with fucking top 40 music and like covers of um, Cranberry songs. There's like a, like a. And live. Yeah, and live <laughs> songs about abortion while I'm trying to squat heavy, thinking about not shitting myself. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's terrible and like people's conversations. I find people's conversations oh. worse. 
Yeah, that's and, see. I have I wear my noise cancelling headphones in the gym. Firstly, it was to avoid the music, but then you realise as well. You're like, oh yeah, the garbage conversations that are happening, uh, like, yeah. like the two, like the people on the stairmaster, and they're just like gossiping away, <laughs> and they're on there for like a fucking hour, and you're like, I think that's enough. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, can you stop? Just stop, stop. But yeah, <laughs> if I'm gonna listen to music, it's like, yeah, it's further away from confidence. Yeah, usually when I really need it. <laughs> or I'm really like, oh my god, I can't listen to this dude. Yeah, oh, talk fuck. anymore while he's fucking doing bicep kills. Yeah, so. talking about his macros and his whatever else. Oh, some shit. Or just like, it's also a good way to get people not to talk to you. Mm. So you put the wall up. Yeah, and I like talking to people. I'm a tr- like I train people as well. Um, I'm getting into that that world of being a coach and a trainer, and so I like to help people. I feel like I've got a good understanding of things. I've put a lot of effort into learning as much as I can. Yeah, and you've got to share that with people. Yeah. You know? So, like, if there's someone who looks like they need help or they come to me and want to ask about why I'm doing something, I always want to be able to do that. Yeah. But sometimes I don't want to talk to anybody. So, um, especially if it's some dude who's going to come and ask for advice and then not put any of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a friend of mine says um, those people are called assholes. <laughs> Which I thought was genius. Assholes. Yeah. Because they're an asshole who asks questions, but they'd never do anything with the fucking information you give them. You're like, you know, you should, you probably should do this, or look into, you know, doing this, or this is how, you know, trying to correct form. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. People want help correcting form because sure. most people in gyms don't know what they're doing. No, and that can cause serious injuries. Yeah, and like I try not to do it, but I have a few, a fair few times interrupted people and go, "You're going to hurt yourself if you keep doing that." Mm. And what would those things be? Is it like which, for which exercise? Is it like is it like elbows out too far, like could a bench be, or something? Could or be anything. Like oh, that's like they're using enough weight that, that something's going to get hurt, mm. or they're going to pull something. Yeah. Oh, it could be anything. Like yeah. telling people how to um, use plates under your heels for squats. Like some people go, oh, I'm going to use that, and you elevate your heels. It uses more quads, so they use like a really thick plate, and you're like, don't do that. You just mm. need a little bit, and you need to then go up but you shouldn't really be more than an inch. Um, you don't really need that much quad recruitment from that. You can just put like, you know, 2.5 plates under your heels and mm. squat with a close stance. That'll recruit, recruit more quads than you squatting normal with 10 kilo plates and you're probably gonna hurt yourself. Mm. Or it could be someone doing face pulls and you know, they're throwing their hips into it and like, you're gonna pull your fucking back doing that, mate. Mm. Like, and it's also not using the muscles that you're trying to train, so. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of that guy. Yeah. Jim, <laughs> with it goes, I don't, I, you probably don't want my advice, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't got, just before we move on from Jim, what's the stuff you're listening to in the gym? Because that's an important thing, you know, yeah. like what kind of music, do you have a playlist? Do you put on a certain album? Like what's no, your... No, uh, if like, if it's motivational, if mo- like an energy need, then it's just anything that's dumb and mosh related. Yeah. So, so the angrier, the better. The heavier, the better. The more chugs, the better. Like it's. Just oh yeah, and there's something about the the rhythm of that kind of music is really yeah. good for like it's good for treadmill as well. It's good for yep. like you know, and it's yeah, it's, it's posy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's focus, like um, if I'm just wanting to kind of tune out and do stuff, then it's like maybe it's hip hop. Maybe I don't really like a lot of modern hip hop, but um, it kind of has to have the right vibe. Yeah. Lyrically. I don't like hearing about cars and money and bitches. Um, or it's black metal. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Black metal in the gym, huh? Yeah. So what? 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 Like, what kind of black metal? Like, what are we talking about? Oh, like anything that kind of. I think any black metal, really. Wow. Depends what you like, but. So um, you can tailor your black metal to to your gym. Well, it's kind of like if I'm trying to achieve a, a specific thing from the music. I'm not just listening to music for the sake of it. So yeah. I'll be like, okay, I want to be focused. So I want some black metal that's not going to have me thinking too much about what the music's doing. It's just putting me somewhere. Mm. So atmospheric black metal, something that's repetitious, that's going to do that. Something that I want energy from, it might be a bit more uh, a bit more thrashy or technical. Like I love listening to Deathspell Omega in the gym just because I love Deathspell Omega. So I'll do that. Um, Great. You know, some of the more thrashy bands... The Icelandic bands are good. I won't even have a stab at pronouncing their names, but people who know Icelandic black metal probably know who I'm talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, it depends. What? Um, yeah. So I, I did have like a playlist that was like a ritual thing. Mm. We'd always start with an Armin Ra song, and oh, then it went nice. into this hip, hip, some hip hop, and then into more, you know, Harm's Way, Bury Your Dead. Oh, Bury Dead, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Bury Dead is, like, made for the gym. <laughs> totally, it's Oregon. And those, those dudes, uh, they love the gym too, so... Oh, really? Yeah, they, there you um, go. Yeah. Because I was going to say, I reckon there's some Bury Dead in my gym playlist, like the Haunted, stuff like that, you know, yeah. like that kind of... Yeah. Stuff that gets, you know... <laughs> it gets just, you going. Gets you amped up. So, like, and, you know, if you're doing, like, a heavy deadlift or something, I'll be wanting something that makes me want to kill someone. Like, just fucking angry, pissed-off music that's, like... You want to pick that weight up and be like, fuck, you put it back down. You're like, fuck, I'm going to kill, fuck, you know. <laughs> That's what you want from it. So you go, oh, on, yeah. you go on to that place where they're singing about fucking, you know, shit that's just not in your wheelhouse of life. Yeah. But it's like, it's like a lot of people love hip hop because it's like. Yeah, angry, totally. Angry it's like, and <laughs> it's that <coughs> meme, it's like me listening to Slayer while folding laundry, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> like it. singing about it's murder like, and yeah. Nazis and the occult and stuff. And it's like. <laughs> Yeah, While striving to my admin job. Yeah. Exactly. Look, um, before we wrap all this up, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, I want to say in inverted commas, maybe controversy surrounding Encircling C a little while ago. There was... Yep. Uh, surrounding me. Surrounding you, surrounding some accusations. Is, it, uh, is that, Do you want to give us maybe a bit of a rundown as to what that was? Because a lot of people <laughs> listening to this podcast might have heard that, might have heard that about you, and it's wildly untrue <laughs> and, and, and just kind of a fabrication if, if anything, you know, would you like to talk about that and, and how that kind yeah, of Yeah, I, I guess I would say it's it's not a fabrication so much as it is a manipulation of what? A misinterpretation. It is a misinterpretation and some people's uh, need to take that interpretation to um, make a point. Mm. So, um, look, you know, there's lots of it these days. With yes. Black, especially with black metal. Everybody's a Nazi. Mm. Um I certainly have some opinions that people don't like, but don't we all, you know, that, that makes us human. But uh, what happened was we were playing the reverence. There'd been murmurs of this stuff for a little bit, um, certainly because the last record it has a lot to do with my ancestral heritage. Which is? Uh, well, if you ask other people, they'd just say white. But, yeah, I'm <laughs> European, so I connect... I'm. You know, a practicing Odinist. I'm someone who considers myself a religious practitioner of Odinism, which is ancient Germanic practice. So, um, but that, you know, 
more broadly goes into Norse mythology, more broadly again goes into kind of the <coughs> pre-Christian era of most of Europe, certainly Western Europe. Mm. Um, and you even mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, like you celebrate the equinox and the mm -hmm. solstices and things like that. You're connected to nature. You understand it from that kind of point of view. Yeah, and look, that's where, it, that's where it came from. Yeah. And it was a need to connect more deeply than just that because I got to a point where connecting with nature was, wasn't was enough. There wasn't the answers there that mm. I wanted. I thought that that's where they were and they weren't there. They were Once I had my son... Um, once my wife gave birth to my son, um, I was very, really lost spiritually. Um, and I'll credit my good friend, if not a virtual one, um, Chet Scott from Blood of the Black Owl in the States. He, one of his records kind of really brought this this not brought this on, but, but but brought it to the surface. You kind of now had a thing that you were like, oh, that's yeah. And he, he released a record called Light the Fires and it was had a lot to do with connecting to that spiritual energy of your ancestors. And that kind of sparked a bit of like, oh, well, like just a, an area of interest. And so I'd already been interested in Norse paganism and the runes, particularly runes are something I connect with very, mm. very much and we've used... It's a part of the visual element of the band. Yeah, and, and look, we probably started for the other dudes in the band, it doesn't mean as much. And at the time, it might have been just like a bit of a cool thing that they were like, oh, this is cool. You know, it looks cool. Looks good on merch. Yeah. And, but for me, it was always, it's always deeper than mm. that with anything that I do. <clears throat> and so um, with being connected to that, <clears throat> that stuff and this record being about that stuff. Um, it's easy for people to make the wrong assumption. Sure. Yep. Especially when you come from a European background and you're just a white guy connecting to your ancestors and there's like you know, a lot of people out there who say, I'm a white guy connecting to my ancestors is just dog whistling that I'm a Nazi. Right. <coughs> and now, so, just, just quickly for the listeners, sure. a dog whistle is, that's a, that's a word that gets thrown around, but I don't know if people necessarily know. But, so well, a dog whistle is a, what humans can't hear, but dogs can hear. Yeah. So if, you know... Um, in this context, it would be you're saying things that connect with some people. Uh, the other dogs. The other dogs. So I'm saying these dog things about other, you know, that other dogs can hear, but the general public are like, what the hell does he even mean? Mm. So it's like <coughs> being it's accused. Like, it's of, like having a secret code almost. Yeah. And which I think is most people's attempt to justify something they don't understand. Because mm. it's not that. It's not that for me. Never has been. So, um, being more connected to this and being going down this path and wanting to sing about my heritage, and but on a broader scale. So I'm not just singing about grandpa and grandma coming over from England, and that's not the heritage I'm talking about. I'm talking about pre-Christian. I'm talking about the more abstract, metaphysical aspects of my heritage, mm. and looking into the practices and the rituals that they performed and how they found meaning in the world and trying to, you know, embrace something in that for myself and for my family. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was really the impetus of having my son and listening to Chet's album and all these things, I just felt really lost and I was like, well, maybe this is the route. And I found like this deeper connection to nature and deeper connection to myself and the kind of spiritual element of family connection and ancestry that led me down this path. And so the record came out um, and I don't, I don't really think anyone's got a problem 
with a record, I'm sure people could go through it and go, well, what do you mean here? These are all dog whistle, dog whistle, dog whistle, but it's not. I'm not trying to put something out that's not what I say it is. So I've been pretty upfront about talking about what it is that I'm doing mm. and a lot of people still insist that it's not what I'm doing and that's what I find so fascinating about this whole thing is that you are in this instance kind of an open book like it's not like you're hiding any of this from anyone you are clear in your intentions as to all of this stuff but sure. people still want to take that and run with it yep and why do you think that is because oh, they're all like they're, like people are scared of it yeah um, people are going to take other things like most of the drama has come about through things that are not connected to the band, that are per- interpersonal relationships and stuff that I've said on or posted on private accounts that people take out of context, don't talk to me about, and then like share in screenshots to each other and formulate this whole story about what I've become mm. and never talk to me. Um, and just go, oh, well, you've painted this picture of yourself on the internet that would say this, and it's like through what, sharing a quote from an author you don't like. Did you read the quote? Did you find meaning in the quote? Did you get what I got from, from that quote, what I was trying to convey? Or have you read the book? You're upset that I posted a photo of a book that I'm reading. Have you read that book? No, you haven't that read that book. So how can you judge me based on the contents of a book you haven't read? Mm. And why are you placing their writings into my worldview? I'm interested in this. I've studied history. I've studied lots of different. I've studied sociology. I've read heaps of stuff I don't agree with. I've read heaps of stuff um, from a critical perspective that I found meaning in that I don't agree with the overall picture. It's like I hate communism, right? <coughs> I think Marx is the most overrated, um, probably one of the most overrated people of the, the 20th century, if not the entire history of the world. Um, but there's still meaning in his work. Yeah. There's still there's still parts that I can take out of that as someone who deplores what he represents that has meaning. And I can do that on the other side of the fence too. But other people just see you going to the other side of the fence and think that, that that's where you're staying. Mm. I can find meaning in... in and I'm, I'm not special to do that. Anyone can do that. Yeah, You have to read with the abstract in mind and not place on your your modern ideas on what they were trying to say. So there's a lot of authors that I've read, I've posted quotes of that some people might not like. I've lost friends over it. Um, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you'd share a quote with that person from that person. They think this about women. And I'm like, have you read their work or did you just look at Wikipedia? Yeah. Like, do you know the context in what they said about this? You know, I lost a really good friend over that. It's like there's so much good in what they've done that you're letting the bad take it away. And that's kind of my point of view is always like find the good in it and use the good to better yourself and better the world that you live in. But everyone else wants to find the bad behind the good and use that to shame you out of society. It's, um, it's a very wise... <laughs> it's, a, like a, that's, it's a beautiful way to end the show, man, and I think we could all probably try and find the good in, in everything instead of trying to focus on the bad because we're, we're in that time where the pendulum has swung back to that point now where we're, we're just looking for the bad and everything you know we, well, just wanna, yeah. we wanna divide and we wanna you know keep everything you know and I just think it's a uh, yeah it's it's an interesting time that we're, we're in at the moment you know we, we live in a polar world where yeah. everything's black or white and it's one side or the other yeah and, and you wanna be on this side and if you're not on this side with me yeah you're on the wrong side of history mm. it's like well that's not that's not reality 
Reality is the grey in the middle. And, you know, people who focus so much on trying to um, bring, tear other people down for what they supposedly believe or um, constantly trying to fix societal problems that they actually have no hope in hell of fixing and never work on themselves are never going to achieve anything in life. So, if, you know, you start with yourself. Um, another controversial figure that I would read would be Jordan Peterson. I was about to say that that, you, that, 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 that attitude is a bit Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Clean, clean your room. Clean your room, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I'm not a massive Jordan Peterson advocate. I, I have um, listened to and read a lot of his work, like his overall message. Mm. Um, a lot of people go, you know, say the same things about him. Mm. But, if but I think, <laughs> like, when it comes down to it, regardless of who said it, I think it's a fantastic notion that it's like sort your own yeah. world before you're going to go fix someone else's problems you know like who like are you going to listen to the guy in the gym telling you how to correctly lift his, if he's not lifting his own you know weight like it's For the sure. same concept right like you're only going to listen to people that seem to have it together so yeah and but even like on a deeper level you're not going to affect any change if all you're talking about is how to do it and not doing it mm. so one of my favorite quotes that i will use probably, you know, since I've read it, I've used it in every situation I can talk about, is Carl Jung said, um, you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. So mm -hmm. show people what it is that you are about. Live your philosophy. Live your life in a way that inspires other people to do better and be better. Don't talk about it. Don't fucking bring other people down and deconstruct everything. It's such a Marxist... This is one reason I hate Marx. <laughs> <laughs> He's back on the Marx track. Well, it's just like to just destroying anything of meaning to focus on, um, you know, a set of ideals. And those ideals are not concrete. They change with time. Mm. It's the current year. It's 2019. It's like we, we've done... Diff the world's a different moral place than it was 50 years ago, 10 years ago even. Mm. But through it all, there's like... You know, you can be good and act good and do good. That never changes. So the people who s seek to tear me down should focus more on themselves, I think, Yeah. than me, because I'm pretty... I'm an open book. Yeah. Like every t everything I've ever said about this band is how it is, and I'm pretty honest about it. If you talk to me in person, I'm going to give you the same answers. Yeah. Um, anyone who says that there's an underlying current of something else is trying to you know, nefariously bring me down because of some agenda of their own. Yeah. It's not it's not me. Wow. So heavy stuff, man. <laughs> well, uh thank you so much for your time coming uh early for this practice and, and You're having a having a good chat. Um and uh yeah. Uh good luck on when's Crowbar? Seventh. Yeah, seventh of December. Great. So people can come and pick your brain after the show huh yeah i'm more than happy to talk to anyone i'm always at the merch desk unless i'm playing if anyone wants to talk to me you're more than welcome to well it's been a pleasure talking with you today man so thank you so much for coming on the show you're welcome thanks for having me all right cheers okay post ramble time wow that was a big episode number 10 we've reached double digits maybe that means that's why we're gonna get some change now some growth I was really into the fact that Rob was into inverting the card. That's something that um, we'd never done before. I'd never thought about even doing, but 
it came out upside down and that's how he played it. And I think it played into a lot of what we talked about in the podcast, which was kind of cool and kind of refreshing to see someone be so honest and open and willing to kind of face their his own shit and just and and deal with it and talk about it so openly with someone he met just that day so i really appreciated rob taking that time um taking time out of band practice we we were in a rush at the end getting through all that heavy stuff at the end but then we had all the all the encircling sea dudes were hanging out the front of uh the three-phase room waiting to kind of set up and the moment we wrapped they were just like running in drums and amps and things and i was like oh shit so i felt a little bit bad for keeping those guys uh from practicing but it was a fantastic interview i really had a great time and it was really great getting to getting to know rob and and uh yeah it's pretty fucking cool no lightning round this time i know i said i was going to start doing lightning round because that'd be so much fun um but we just didn't have time as you kind of listen to the podcast by the time we hit that final bit it was like fuck well i didn't really want to kind of break the Maybe it would have been great to break the tension with a couple of lightning round questions, but we just didn't have time. Um, but there will be lightning round questions uh, next episode. Very excited about that. Dwayne Jackson, lovely Dwayne Jackson, has c- contributed some other lightning round questions that are a bit more my style. He's like, you should do questions like this. And I was like, they're great. I'll add them in. We'll do them. So that'll be a part of the next episode for sure. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to this one. And... Um, yeah, thanks again for all the lovely messages and comments and stuff I've been getting and people following me on Instagram. It's very, very lovely. So if we keep that up, that would be great. I am at Fuck You Tarot Lady on Instagram. Um, you can go give me a follow and like my posts and it makes me feel so warm inside. It's lovely. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll see you very soon.